Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup for Wednesday, February 7th, 2024, we're going to be answering the following three questions we've been hearing from international educators. First up, what higher ed social media trends should we be looking out for in 2024? Next, how has the U.S. mission in India turned things around since the pandemic? And finally, what should internationalization look like on U.S. campuses? We'll be answering those three questions and more today on the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. Thanks for joining. And as we do each week on the Roundup, we take our questions that we answer here on the Roundup on Wednesdays from our newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings. And for those that aren't familiar, we do, this newsletter is available in two forms. I'm giving you three links in the chat. First up, our smieconsulting.org slash subscribe website, where you can scroll down to the subscribe area for all the SMIE news fit to share. That's the name of the newsletter. And in case you're wondering, SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education Consulting. That's the company name. Those are the two themes of our newsletter each week, social media stories that impact, uh, impact what we do in international education, and then also uh, international ed news from uh, national level in the United States, as well as global uh, roundups and solutions that uh, may be useful amongst uh, the news stories of the week. So uh, you can subscribe via the link in the, on our website, smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. You can also, I'm dropping the links into the chat for the uh, email version of that. That's the result of subscribing through the website. Uh, that will come out Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern every week. And the second link uh, in the chat for the, this week's edition will be from or the, news, the uh, LinkedIn version of the newsletter, which now in and of itself has over 600, 1,600 subscribers. Uh, together, nearly 1,700 folks are subscribing either via email or LinkedIn to get this email, uh, to get this important newsletter in your inboxes every Monday morning. But the LinkedIn version does come out about a half hour earlier at about 8.30 Eastern every Monday. Now, the two, uh, two, the two versions of the this week's newsletter will provide you the, the breadth of, the, of our hot takes on these topics related to social media and international ed stories of the week. And then we pick the themes that we see developing each week. If there are a couple of three stories that are around a central, central issue that we can reflect on or expand upon here on Wednesdays in our roundup session, goes a little bit more in depth and talks more through how these individual issues can be viewed on your campuses, how you may or may not be able to uh, adapt how you do what you do uh, related to international student recruitment, international student services, all of these things that impact what we do in international education. So uh, let's get right to our questions of the week. And the first one, as I mentioned, what higher ed social media trends should we be watching out for in 2024? And this is a question that uh, I always get asked because most of us in international admissions, international student recruitment circles, there are elements of what we do that are social media related, obviously how we communicate with prospective students, how we now message uh, individual students or groups of students that we meet while traveling. All of these things are important for us, uh, tools that we need to be aware of, but uh, oftentimes we're not the ones implementing policy on our campuses. We're not the ones that are really driving uh, uh, what, how we do what we do when it comes to social uh, in 
uh, our student recruitment plans. It's usually part of a larger MARCOM unit, either within enrollment management or within the larger university that you report to or everything gets funneled through. So how you can influence or just become aware of what's happening is, uh, is an important step. Uh, obviously, internationally, we know in certain markets, you have to be a very flexible in terms of how you try and reach students because you know they're not all going to be on Facebook, Instagram, uh, and TikTok uh, in every country. Uh, they may be more on messaging platforms than they are on video platforms or, or traditional social media platforms like Twitter and YouTube. So these are the things that you need to become aware of. Certainly you are as you travel. You, you're, you certainly become very familiar with which uh, platforms, messaging apps are most common in each country. Uh, there's some great resources out there that will help you that help you develop uh, strategies in each of those major countries. Um, we'll, we've talked about some of them in the past, and we'll continue to do so as uh, further news stories uh, arise. I know there may be something coming next week on those uh, those fronts as well. But uh, let's let's talk about uh, what uh, a particular article from uh, Keystone Education Group. Uh, they uh, have a number of different social uh, student lead generation platforms. Uh, that they they can they manage, but also uh, have a number of um, email and student communication tools that they help uh, institutions with, uh, both in the UK, Australia, and now the US and Canada. Uh, they're very uh, very actively working with US schools now to try and uh, help them with their Comflow messaging internationally to uh, deliver the right kind of messages. So they're, they're certainly well plugged into uh, what's happening on digital fronts. Uh, they've identified five major trends uh, for 2024 uh, that are make the most of professional photography, create with generative AI tools, lean into your bragging rights authentically and what that looks like, shake it up with user-generated content, and grow your YouTube presence. So some of those seem like fairly straightforward, and yes, absolutely, you need to do that. Some of those are maybe new, uh, like the AI tool, generative AI tools that you can use to create content, uh, and then uh, the bragging rights piece authentically and what that looks like. So they've gone through uh, in their assessment of five uh, these five areas, uh, trends that they think uh, we should be looking out for, and there's some real, I think, real importance uh, in in all of them really in terms of the, the challenges that we face. Some are, uh, are, are very clear and present in terms of uh, being authentic, uh, engaging with, with our, with our uh, prospective students in an authentic way, uh, with user-generated content primarily, because that uh, does tend to get the most interaction and engagement. But they do make a very good point, and I've certainly noticed this too, about the use of professional photography. Uh, we all have our campus glamour shots that we use uh, in our in our print materials, uh, in our digital versions of those, uh, and and maybe in in our social media. And that's that's the piece that maybe I think I've seen not only through my alma mater uh, and other institutions that I've uh, been associated with over the years that I follow on on social social platforms that they have begun using. Uh, drone footage, uh, drone shots, or campus beauty shots, uh, much more to just engage with alumni bases and prospective student bases and current staff bases. I know, uh, for example, uh, with, uh, with regard to uh, uh, UNLV, uh, where I work now as Director of Global Recruitment and Partnerships, uh, I, don't, I, I work fully remote, but certainly uh, we had an incident in December that 
um, really shook our campus. It really helped, uh, well, helped bring us together in a, a lot of ways as a campus community to respond as one and to and to uh, to uh, respond to the the trauma that we had experienced on December six with the shooting that happened on campus. But we we our social teams at the at the at, from the outset were told, okay. It's, it's got everybody's on the same page here. We're not doing any new promotional messages or anything other than UNLV strong, hashtag UNLV strong. And we're the, the themes of our social uh, pieces that we'll be putting out are going to be very much uh, uh, healing and restorative and sharing resources with our campus community. All of these things that we needed to do as a campus community uh, to bring ourselves together, to help our, our faculty, staff, students begin to heal, begin to move on, and they're going to be, uh, it's a long road, obviously, to full full recovery. Who knows if we'll ever get there, but there was something as a university that we came together, and uh, particularly I've noticed on social uh, during those first few days and weeks afterwards, the, the, the hashtag UNLV Strong certainly has become uh, a real symbol of what we do, much like uh, anytime high schools have shootings or uh, cities are in, engaged, have these things happen, it's uh, there's whatever the city strong is the hashtag that's used and that's that's become a sad reality that we we have and deal with in our in our nation here um, but uh, what we did as a, as a university we would uh, we would repost things from uh, other uh, institutions that showed their support for us uh, our our sister schools in Nevada that uh, did did things uh, Put, flashed our, our the LV sign uh, uh, on social media. They got a group of their staff together, wore our colors on a Friday. We wear Rebel Red on Fridays, so uh, that was something that we would uh, we would do on our campuses. But we would be having our sister schools in Nevada doing the same thing, and uh, other schools in in the Midwest were showing uh, doing videos in support of what we were doing. We're sharing those out again, so that helps to bring our campus together. There was some professional photography about campus with the UNLV Strong uh, hashtag on it that we were sharing out. Uh, just some really strong images that we were able to to use to help engage with our our campus community for one, but our friends of UNLV too that helped bring us t together and feel like we were being heard and we were being uh, cared for and uh, that it wasn't just us alone on an island dealing with this. It's we. It's a sad state as we talked about, you know, that w our campus was uh, was impacted by uh, by this, this shooting and all of our well, and, and we know we're not the only one. We have folks who've experienced similar shootings on other on their own campuses. Uh, reach out to us and share resources with us. And it's that kind of um, uh, social um, awareness, uh, 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 social media awareness that we had, uh, that we knew we needed to to, to show a united front that we were going to be able to move forward together as a campus. So that is one of those trends. I, I'm belaboring this point a little bit much, but uh, I think it's important to, to recognize that in the positive and in the negative, you can use social to help you uh, help you move forward. And the, the campus beauty shots I've noticed from my, my alma mater, they use those regularly now. And I say I always see the engagement rates on those are way up off the charts off of traditional posts on events that might be going on campus. But when it's a really, uh, really uh, important shot or uh, uh, a visual that really resonates with people connected with the institution or those that want to be connected with the institution, that that matters. And 
that's that prof making good use of professional photography. And that's probably one that I've, I've seen coming up that I, I would encourage more of us to do and, and use those in, in our prospective student outreach as well, because there's, there's some real value, I think, in taking, taking those steps forward. Um, now, the, the use, the, probably the one on this list of five that jumps out at you is the creating content with generative AI tools and what that looks like. Uh, and a lot of us are going to be new uh, into the into the realm here of what that looks like, but uh, there's a, a, a graphic in this uh, Keystone article that says has has for different platforms. Uh, for example, for TikTok, create five engaging TikTok post ideas to advertise our campus to new students. Use content from our website, blah blah blah, and puts the website in, link in there. Uh, then for with write three headlines for our Facebook lead generation carousel adverts. Each headline should advertise a different program. Programs are and put the ones that you want to highlight. Create three call to actions for our student email campaigns to encourage them to study for a master's degree. And then uh, that this is using Ask Chat GPT. So all these things are ways that you can kind of allow uh, allow generative AI tools that are out there to help help you create the kind of content so you don't spend hours and hours doing that. You obviously can refine and edit and all of that once you get these ideas, but uh, it's an important uh, tool that you might want to start using in, in your social content strategy. Uh, then it talks about bragging rights, uh, talking about highlighting those things that are, are, are what your school is best known for uh, and, and using those and, and doing so with authenticity. Uh, and that's, the, that's always the trick, right? And how, how do we do that? And that's, um, they, they do give some important examples of that in the article I won't go into now. But, uh, but ideally, the user-generated content should be driving a lot of what you do because that is where your prospective students in particular are going to be the most engaged in uh, responding and sharing and, and commenting on those kinds of things. So please make sure you're, you have an important element like that in your social strategies. And the final element uh, is growing your YouTube presence. And it may seem that that's kind of, well, well, don't we all have YouTube channels? And what does that look like? What does it mean to really grow your YouTube presence? I know my son, he's, he's, he's right at the end of Gen Z, beginning of Gen Alpha. Uh, he'll be going to college in four or five years. Uh, he's uh, four years, oh gosh. And he, he's, he lives on YouTube. He has his own YouTube channel. He's created uh, animation, uh, animation content that he has now almost, uh, almost a thousand subscribers. But uh, he's living on YouTube. And that, that presence there and how important uh, all, like I think 25% of world, global mobile traffic is on YouTube. Uh, that's, that's just out, out, unbelievable. And that's, uh, there's, by the end of this year, 2024, there's supposed to be over 9 mil, 933 million users on, on YouTube. So they'll be crossing into the billion ter territory that's uh, reserved right now for, uh, for, for the meta products of Facebook Messenger and in Instagram and WhatsApp. So uh, that, that understanding of your audience, where they're spending their time, that we always talk about here is live where your audience lives. Uh, to use authenticity, use user-generated content, to use AI to help you do your job, and to use the existing professional photographs to, to really help you leverage your, your best assets as an institution uh, is, is our, our, our five solid uh, trends that I would recommend all of us pay, pay some close attention to. Now, moving on to our second topic of the day, and that is how has the U.S. mission in India turned things around so dramatically since the pandemic? And when, I, when we talk about this topic, you, know, you don't 
need a need a way back time machine to figure this out. That when the pandemic hit, uh, we knew uh, China was had, uh, had been the number one market and had basically shut down. The country had shut down. Our embassy officials and consular officials there weren't able to do their jobs. They were uh, they were their their locations were physically shut down if they were even allowed back into the country. A lot of them had been out of the country for. Uh, the Lunar New Year celebration in early 2020 uh, and hadn't, weren't able to get back in. So there was long delays and then the, well, they weren't able to reopen fully until really late 20, into 2021. So there's, uh, there was a lot of challenges in, in China. In India, there wasn't, weren't so much the visa, uh, the consular opening challenges that certainly existed in China. The challenges were the just huge upswing in demand that and coupled with reduced staffing that impacted every U.S. consulate and embassy around the world, uh, that there was a, re, a, a dip in staffing available to do these consular uh, interviews, that uh, there were f uh, families that had to relocate to the U.S. temporarily. Uh, there were all sorts of uh, transitions that were happening that impacted our uh, U.S. Foreign Service's ability to conduct visa interviews and local conditions on the ground. If there were outbreaks or uh, closures of their, of, their, of their embassies or consulates, that impacted ability to meet need. Uh, and in India, we've seen it, and to this day, the, the growth in interest in coming to the U.S., not just for uh, for visitors, but particularly for students, has just skyrocketed. Um, and we've seen uh, the, the U.S. ambassador to India, Gil Garcetti, who is a pre former uh, mayor of, uh, of Los Angeles, if I'm not mis mistaken. But he ha is a very PR-focused um, ambassador, probably one of the most active uh, in, in the world uh, in terms of his public relations uh, efforts in the country. And he has since taking office in 2021, really uh, become kind of a standard bearer for how to refocus uh, a, a, a U.S. mission in a, in a major country to the point where they have almost completely transformed their processes top to bottom uh, some, through some help from, from uh, Main State in terms of uh, policies on removing the requirement for visa interviews for folks that have already gotten U.S. visas in the last four or five years, uh, to streamlining visa process, uh, appointment processes, to being able to get rid of some of these visa appointment buying uh, agencies that exist in India. Uh, there's just been a, a wealth of changes, ramping up staffing uh, during peak periods. Uh, the opening of the new uh, consulate in Hyderabad with 75 visa windows. All of these things have come together in the last three years to, to bring India to the point where uh, it's not uh, perfect yet. There's still, for those that do require v uh, interviews for visitor visas, B1, B2 visas, there's still almost a year wait in some locations in India, particularly in Hyderabad. But uh, the student visa rates, uh, interview weights are, are way down. Uh, the other, other, other weights for major categories are way down. And for those that already have had visas, uh, processing times are way down as well. So there's some really strong evidence to show that India has made uh, an incredible uh, lion's leap forward here. And uh, in terms of numbers, there's a couple articles I'll be dropping in the chat uh, that uh, wait times have uh, some of the stats from the U.S. mission site here on an article that came out on uh, January 29th. Uh, the U.S. consular team in India processes more visas than ever before in 2023, bringing down visitor visa appointment waits by 75 percent. 
Uh, they uh, processed in, in the last year, calendar year, a record smashing 1.4 million U.S. visas. Demand across all visa classes was, was unprecedented in, in the country with a 60% increase in applications compared to 2022. And now Indians represent one out of every 10 U.S. visa applicants around the world. Not visa approved, but visa applicants, one out of 10 globally that are applying for U.S. visas are Indian. Now, uh, we've seen the rebound uh, to uh, over 700,000 B1, B2 uh, visas. That's the second highest in, on record. And they had achieved this uh, through uh, month, uh, three-month staffing surge in Mumbai in the early part of 2023, and then increased permanent staff levels and the employment of some tech solutions to, again, cut down on those uh, wait on the on the appointment buying uh, process the wait time for visas visitor visas is down from an average of 1000 days for 3 years almost to only 250 days around the country and minimal in other categories and here's the one that obviously impacts us in international education uh, in 2023 the US consular team issued over 140,000 student visas more than any other country in the world setting a record uh, for the last th for th third year running. And if you look at Mumbai, New Delhi, Hyderabad, and Chennai, those are now the top four student visa processing po posts in the entire world. So uh, none of the China ones even make that list, top four list. So because of that, uh, they're now Indian students, as we've seen from the Sivas by the Numbers data, uh, are now the largest single uh, group of international students in the United States. And that they're up, uh, they make up more than a quarter of the overall 1 million plus international students in the U.S. So they have really done a remarkable job, and we know how important uh, in India uh, post-study work is, and H-1Bs are, uh, direct H-1Bs from India are even, that uh, there in 2023 uh, there were uh, 380,000 employment visas that were processed for Indians and their, Indians and their family members, and that uh, they were able to do that through a petition-based uh, visa processing process. Uh, uh, system in Chennai and Hyderabad, which increased efficiencies, that in 2024 they're going to be piloting a project for H eligible H-1B holders to renew their visas in the U.S., so they don't have to come home for that, which is great. Uh, I know when my uh, my family were renewing our L-2 visas, uh, L visas with my dad, uh, the second version of that, we, the second three-year term, he had, we had to go home for for a period of time to uh, to get the visas processed back in England before we came back to the U.S., so a lot of a lot of really great strides forward uh, in India by the U.S. mission there. Uh, certainly, you see some in, uh, interesting articles, uh, particularly how India are is obviously very proud of of how significant a, uh, a role they are having in U.S. Uh, in the U.S. economy in terms of growth for. Uh, their citizens that are looking to go abroad and work and, and uh, potentially return. It's all of that is just some really strong evidence, and they're very proud of that uh, in India. That uh, that how how close closely tied our two countries are uh, with that. So some really strong content there uh, from the U.S. mission in in India to really 
uh, from a, a time in, during COVID where wait times were just outrageous and staffings were half or a quarter of what they originally should have been. So there's been some amazing, amazing uh, progress uh, in India in the last three years. So kudos to the team in India for all their strong work and growing uh, the ability of Indians to, to study in the United States as well as uh, visit and work. Now, the final question of the day, uh, what should internationalization look like on U.S. campuses? Now, this is a very uh, str uh, important question, obviously. Um, we're engaged in the middle of that here at uh, UNLV. Uh, we started that process in 2021 when I first joined as a consultant. After a year, moved in from a consultant role to, into um, into my current role as a director of global recruitment and partnerships, but one of the one of the key elements in making that sh shift from no interna internationalization strategy and just kind of dealing with students as they came, sending students where we could, not really having any coordinated approach to partnerships or research or anything like that, we now are in a position where we are not perfect by any stretch, but we're making solid gains in for international inbound students we are now focusing on develop, making sure the services that we are providing to them as new students living in the United States and during their time on campus through to graduation and becoming successful alumni that we now are engaging not just international student office not just the uh, admissions office but Every office on campus that touches the lives of international students has to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. And too often on campuses, other offices that play vital roles for international students really don't have the understanding of what their needs are uh, from the outset. And when you're building an internationalization strategy, part of that process is everyone has to be involved in supporting the students that you're trying to successfully graduate. And we know, because we're in the business in international ed, we know our students have different needs and different restrictions on them that the traditional U.S. citizen or permanent resident has. Just like the Dreamers have very different uh, uh, restrictions on them as opposed to our military vets, as opposed to our first-gen students and other minority student groups on our campus. Those have unique needs and we, they're catered to in lesser, greater or lesser extents across the campus community. And offices need to be aware of their needs. And similarly for international students, where there are usually those challenges most significantly faced uh, after the initial enrollment process begins are at the end uh, with regard to uh, career services and alumni status and what that means and how those two offices that can be linchpins to making an international student's experience on campus memorable and even enhanced because they're able to get them that first job, get them plugged into an alumni network overseas if they're going home. All of those things can, all the good that might have been done with their great time as a student on campus could be for not if they're not supported right at those critical moments before they leave and as they're leaving campus. So these are things that we've, we're, we're developing on our campus that need to be part of uh, overall internationalization efforts uh, for our university. Uh, similarly for study abroad, expanding the range of programs, getting them engaged more er earlier in their, in their cycle for, for undergraduate students so that they're considering short-term summer programs after their first year or into their, um, into their winter term perhaps uh, between the fall and spring terms of their second year getting them thinking about studying abroad, planting those seeds from orientation or before they arrive on campus that, hey, this is a reality, that you can study abroad 
for the for at or less at or below the same cost that you would if you were staying on campus for a summer or for a semester. So those are the things that we're trying to do and uh, incorporating a, a framework for internationalizing uh, uh, partnerships uh, that we have with universities abroad and what those look like and establishing those procedures and working individually with colleges who want to grow their international footprint and through research collaborations through dual degrees and other opportunities those are the things that are part of what we're trying to do there are two articles that came out in the last week that are, are speak to some of these issues that we're, i'm talking about here uh, first is from a legend in international education john hudzik uh, formerly of uh, Michigan State. I think he might be even retired now from there. Uh, but he is uh, one of the more prolific writers and thinkers in our field on internationalizing higher education. And he points to uh, the vital role of faculty in the uh, internationalization efforts. And this is, this is, this is when we talk internationalization, uh, here we're talking about uh, curriculum in terms of research, in terms of the, the faculty that are brought into campus through uh, exchanges, through hires, all of these things. Uh, the partnerships that we, we build uh, in uh, across campuses, across borders, faculty have to play a driving role in that. Uh, deans can lead, but the faculty are the real doers of uh, bringing in folks to do research with, to uh, to working with uh, their counterparts in other institutions to develop uh, joint programs, to lead uh, short-term study abroad, to, uh, to facilitate um, scholars and researchers from other campuses and perhaps exchange students on certain campuses leading those efforts. So these are the faculty, and John makes a uh, very strong case that uh, they need to be even more important in that um, in that role uh, of, for internationalization and having their champions in each of the colleges on your campus who, who are those faculty that can help drive things forward. Uh, and I, I have to agree with them there because on larger com comprehensive colleges that, and universities uh, with 10, 12 different colleges or more uh, on, on a campus, there's going to be such disparate levels of willingness to engage and appetite to engage and actual staff who want to engage internationally uh, and those, those identifying those folks and keeping them all in, in engaged and in the loop and uh, informed as to what uh, what the, some of the challenges we're facing are that has to be a priority so uh, that faculty piece is so important in helping develop uh, the kind of uh, dealing with learning how to deal with hostile departmental culture in some campuses to those that are, are, are where there's real opportunity for synergies interdisciplinary on a college campus to present a united front to prospective partners. All of those things are real, uh, real value adds to uh, an internationalization strategy. So kudos to John for, um, for this article, certainly well, well read and very well researched and a thorough article for, uh, for will give a lot of, uh, lot of opportunity for those that are looking for the ideas on how to better engage with faculty and what that looks like on a, on a major college campus. Now, the other half of this uh, equation is the SIL role, the Senior International Officer role. And uh, talking about internationalization uh, a few days before the AIEA conference uh, that's happening in D.C. annually in February, uh, this topic of that conference itself is for SIOs and, and those that lead international efforts on college campuses and it attracts uh, institutional representatives from around the world each year. 
And in terms of advancing the profession uh, and internationalization, how SIOs can lead the charge, there's a great uh, article from Pi News this past week that really talks to these uh, in terms of leading the inter intentional collaborations, not only how SIOs play that role, not only on campus by bringing those departments and college units together to work together as, a, as an institution to, to expand international efforts, but also to, uh, to lead overseas efforts to find the right partners. And that's a, that's a key element in, in finding those right partners that make sense for an institution, that are good fits for an institution. Um, and, and I know where we started at UNLV when I came on board a couple of years ago in my staff role, partnerships was, uh, had been handled by study abroad and they were, it was an office that kind of just helped them help the MOUs happen and kind of cooperation agreements happen. And now we're being much more intentional about kind of leading some of the efforts. Uh, we know it's not always going to be us led. It's some, some of it's going to be top down from the president. We want to work with this institution. Some it's going to be faculty up uh, or to college level up and others are going to be uh, driven for, through our internationalization efforts as a, as a, as a campus through our, our, our global education unit, uh, global education initiatives unit. So the role of the SAO and at UNLV we don't have one yet uh, and that's uh, a challenge we have. We have basically our three uh, directors, executive directors of our international units, study abroad, student service, scholar services, and my global recruitment and partnerships that uh, kind of lead our uh, global education initiatives team. We report up to the senior vice provost, uh, who is technically our SIO now. Uh, so she has uh, many other responsibilities on campus and really can't commit full time to what we need uh, done for, in, for an SIO role. So we do that by committee. And that is it's not an ideal situation, but it's something we're working towards to eventually having that SIL role. And uh, that person uh, eventually uh, can help really drive forward our, our, our efforts to internationalize across campus and be on the senior leadership team for the university. And uh, if it's really going to be that, taking that seriously as, an, as a priority goal for, for an institution. So that's all we have for you today on the Midweek Roundup. We appreciate you spending the time with us, and we look forward to chatting with you in the weeks and months to come. Uh, we will be uh, live again next week and the week after uh, before we head out of town to API uh, at the beginning of March and then other events in Vietnam the following week. So we look forward to chatting with you in the weeks to come. Uh, please uh, remember to share out uh, the, this uh, Midweek Roundup to your colleagues if they're not already connected with us. Uh, as well as subscribe to the newsletter that comes out on Mondays. So until next time, we wish you the very best. Cheers.